your service to all of us and to uh, Denise and the choir. Love that. To Andrea, uh, love that song. Um, when I graduated from Dallas Seminary the second time, um, uh, one of the students sang that, and in the midst of the song, the sentiment was so great, she got a standing ovation before the song was over. It's a beautiful thing. Well, I want to talk to you today about some hard issues. We're going to look in the book of 1 John, and we're going to try and take ourselves back to the first century and get a little flavor of what was going on then. It's disturbing to me that within 50 or 60 or 70 years of the death of Christ, that heresy entered the church. And it got into the church so bad that half of the work of the apostles was to try to correct and combat the troubles that arose with the gospel. Within a generation or two, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very straightforward, simple plan, trust in Christ, you get eternal life, had become so muddied and confused that they had to write documents in order to clarify it. The Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians primarily about the gospel. And he says, but though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you any other gospel than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. This was a problem, a big problem in the early church. Part of the reason for that is we have a hard time with the gospel. Now, it's as plain as can be. Want to go to heaven? Trust in Christ. There it is. We as people have a great capacity to confound and confuse things. We can mess up just about anything. I saw a bumper sticker the other day. It said, if anything can go well, it will. Well, of course, the window was out in the back, and one of the tires had a little part there where it was separating, and the the paint was coming off on this car. And I thought, well, not in that car. You know, sin is still a problem. Sin is present in the world, and sin seems to be on the rise. I deal with people every day in my medical practice. I've had some wonderful experiences. I have patients like Pastor Lee. We say, please take this medicine. He takes the medicine. He is compliant. He does well, and he behaves. And, you know, look at him. He looks terrific. They make us look good. And then we have the other people that you say, uh, I want you to take this. And they, they, in the midst of their first swallow, they look at the weather report, and they say, oh, I don't know. It's going to be cloudy next Thursday. Maybe this medicine is not for me. We see them, we say, no, what do the clouds have to do with your... Well, I just didn't want to take my pill. They say, I'm not a pill taker. So I say often to them, this shows you a little bit about me, if there's a pill that would cure cancer in a moment, you don't want to be on that list because you're not a pill taker. Well, no, 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 doctor, I'll take that pill. So which pill do you want? Which pills are okay? I've had the occasion with a young man, 19 years old, in college, developed heart failure. And he was hospitalized, and we did all the diligent things that we do, and blood tests and x-rays and all that, and treated him appropriately. He improved in his days in the hospital. And he came back to follow up, and he was back in congestive heart failure at age 19. As we continued in our workup with this, we found out ultimately that the source of, the cause of, the etiology of his congestive heart failure was alcohol. Just booze. He's at college. That's what college kids do. They get together. Friday nights, he would drink a couple of six-packs. And every day in between, at least two or three, and sometimes a mixed drink or some more. And he he said, I don't really drink a lot. Uh, He's had enough to, I, I think, probably fill up 
the USS Enterprise from the, the, the bow to the top. And to him, that really wasn't very much. But every time he drank, being exquisitely sensitive to it, at 19 years of age, he developed heart failure. And it endangered his life. So much so that we sat and talked and said, listen, is there any way you could just put this down and say, it's not for me, that's just not part of my life? I've done that with people. A young man that I have great respect for was struggling with this issue. And I said, you know, do you really want alcohol to be part of your life? And he thought about it. He says, you know, I think not. It's the last time he drank. For him, there was not a problem with it. He was able to think with his mind and determine with his heart what he wanted to be and then engage his will and do what he knew was the right thing. But my young 19-year-old patient could not. Continued to come back and was hospitalized a few more times. And one day I sat with him and we wrote out on a piece of paper. So I'm going to write here, I understand that my continued drinking is endangering my life and that my problem with alcohol could take my life. I turned it around and I said, I'd like you to sign this. He stood up and left my office and has not returned. I found out a few months later that the reason why he didn't return is that he had died of congestive heart failure at 19. 19. Now something was going on in his heart. I don't think that this was just some happy-go-lucky guy that thought, oh, hey, I'll throw back a couple of beers with my buddies. He clearly had a problem. He had an addiction. Addictions are a very fascinating thing for us to recognize about ourselves. We all have the capacity to do this. God made us this way, such that there are certain things in our lives that attract us. Those things in their right place can be something as great as worship. And if it's something that's in the wrong place, those things can become idols to us, false gods to us, such that in our addictions, we are willing to devote ourselves, give our time, give our money, give our health, and sometimes even give our allegiance and lives for these things. Maybe you've got one of those. The early church wrestled with this too, and they they realized, well, the gospel is here. We have eternal life. Uh, As the song says, the double cure from not only sin in general, but practical day-to-day sin. And so they wrestled with this problem. We all continue to still sin. I have problems. I wrestle. I have turmoil in my life. There are things that create false gods to me that I am attached to, that I can't completely remove my heart from. I wish I had a button to press. Gone. I wish I could carve it off. And there are some ways. We'll talk about some of those ways that we can deal with these false idols. The book of 1 John is written late in the first century, and it's addressing these issues. John, as we know, uh, next slide, please, is not just a disciple. It's a very special disciple, one who knew Jesus exceptionally well. He was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was the second disciple that Jesus picked to follow him. Come and follow me, he said to it. John uh, was an unusual guy. He leaned on the Lord's breast at the Last Supper. Um, At the cross, Jesus says to John, Behold your mother, pointing to Mary. And to Mary, he says, Behold your son. Tradition and history has it that Mary, in fact, lived with John until the end of her life. That They were in in the uh, little town of Ephesus, where Paul had ministered, where he had put Timothy in charge. I think we can understand part of Timothy's fear when he preached, sitting on the front row were John and Mary. Imagine if he made a mistake. That would create some fear in a preacher's heart with that. 
But John was a, a very special man and, and did not write anything until probably later in the course of the New Testament, probably somewhere around the 90s. You know, if Jesus died in 30 or 32 or 33, somewhere in there, 60 years later, uh, John is, is writing these books. He was in Ephesus and then was later exiled to the island of Patmos. The reason why he was exiled was because his ministry was effective and the emperor at the time didn't want people like John continuing to promote the cause of the gospel. Next slide, please. John talks to us about fellowship. John talks to us about sin. And his, in his little book, First John, if we look through it, it's an unusual book. There's some similarities between John and, and the gospel of John, uh, not surprisingly. If you read the two, they're to a different audience. There's a different opposition with this. But John gives us some very important purpose statements in his little epistle. The epistle of 1 John is where we're at. This is just a woodcut of the choosing of the disciples. I really don't think they had these little halos on top of them, but I wasn't there. Next slide, please. Um, he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was uh, considered in this inner circle of Peter, James, and John that did certain things with Jesus, going off to pray and up on the, the uh, Mount of uh, Transfiguration. Um, he was considered in the book of Galatians one of the pillars of the church. Paul's contending and saying, you know, I, I got the message of the gospel from Jesus himself. I didn't get it secondhand. And he refers to John as one of the pillars. So that's a good thing for John. Not necessarily so well highlighted in the book of Galatians, though. Lived in Ephesus, was on Patmos, and actually uh, only Paul authored more New Testament books than John. Next slide, please. As we look forward with this, we're going to see some uh, comparisons of the gospel and the epistle. Uh, the gospel is really an evangelical narrative. The epistle is more of a personal homily, uh, an encouragement, maybe even a sermonette. It's not even that long. With this, you can see some of the, the different structures uh, of the, the two texts. He refers to the Word in John 1.1 1, 1 and 1.14, and then also describes here in, word, uh, uh, in uh, verse 1 how that they had seen and handled and touched the Word of life. Same concept in both of these. The reason why he writes is that joy might be made full, and in the, the little epistle of John, one of his purpose statements is that our joy might be full. Next slide, please. Another comparison of this, he talks about different themes, light and darkness, sonship, commandments, love, are all great themes in, in 1 John, same as they were in the Gospel of John. Next slide, please. Um, he writes about these new commandments, contrasting with the Old Testament. You know, it's interesting, the two tablets of Moses, the, the laws that relate to God, the laws that relate to men, all use the negative. They say, you will not have other gods before me. You will not take the Lord's name in vain. You will not uh, commit adultery. You will not bear false witness. In the New Testament, those things are turned around and said in the positive. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we see some of the, the flavor of this in the New Testament. This new commandment of loving one another is John's emphasis. Next slide, please. Um, one of the phrases he uses is to be passed from death to life in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, and then in the, the uh, little epistle of John, the same process. And he's making his point, those of us who have been passed from death unto life have certain characteristics, and those are the things that help us to deal with sin. See, in the New Testament era, having been saved from sin, the big question was, if I've been saved, if I'm a child of God, why do I still sin? What's sin doing in my life? I know better. 
I, I can see my way through it. In fact, I have great experience with sin, I'm sorry to say. I have enough experience to know that every time I've sinned, it's been horrible. It has never worked out. Every time I've made an excuse or a rationalization or a justification and said, well, maybe just this once, or maybe just a little bit, or maybe just over there, or maybe just I won't do this even though I know to do it. It's never turned out great. I can't look back at a single sin in my life and say, that was great. Never. On the other side, I can look back in, in my life. I've been a believer since I was 16. And I can say, you know, there, there were times when perhaps out of faith, perhaps out of uh, strength that God gave to me, I was able to make a decision, uh, make a commitment, go and do a service somewhere in the power of God. And every time it was fantastic. It could be tiring. It could be bothersome. It could be costly. It might even be painful. But I wouldn't trade that for anything in my life. You'd think I would know better. And so as, as we look at this in our own lives, John's going to help us with it. And one of his purpose statements as we uh, look at the book together here is going to get us through this and help us to not be like my 19-year-old patient who could not make the right decision. And he was an addict, and addicts basically have a disorder of worship. Rather than worshiping the one true God the way that we are made to, in his case, he went to his false God to get those same feelings. When you talk to addicts, they'll tell you the same thing. They, they know what it feels like. The drug addict will, will explain, yes, I, I know when I make my decision, I get this excitement. The receptors in his body and his blood vessels and heart and brain uh, are responding to certain chemicals, and those chemicals are the ones that God gave us. He says, I'll, I'll go and get on the bus and I'll go to a certain area. And as I get closer to the place where I will deal drugs, my heart rate picks up. I start to breathe a little faster. I, I see a little more clearly. I'm, I'm excited. might even sweat a little bit. And uh, I know what the place looks like. And as I recognize those things around me, it starts to make me really happy. Even the smells that go along with it, whether that's diesel fuel or just a particular musty uh, area in an alley where a drug deal is done, they'll say, every bit of it, I look forward to it. I just can't wait. And then I pay my money for that, and I know what's coming. And then the thing that follows that is the greatest thing in the world until I wake up in the gutter the next morning or in the hospital the next morning, or in jail the next morning. And then it doesn't feel so great. And they all will tell us the same thing. They have this phenomenon called self-loathing. They wake up and they say, I don't ever want to do that again. I swear I'll never do that again. No matter what, I'll sign up. I'll get a tattoo that says, I don't do this anymore. One man I dealt with went to the pornography shop and he says, I don't want you to ever sell to me here again. If I come back here, you turn me away. A few months later, he went back. They took his money. And it took his family. It took his life away with it. He looked at the two things and said, life and wife and children and godly status versus this. I'll take this. He made a bad choice, made a painful choice. Sin always leads to death. Not necessarily physical death, but separation of people, separation of godly things, godly relationships. You just can't do that. You can't call your pastor and say, I think I'll, I'll meet you at the pornography shop. Uh, we'll have a great time and we'll go drinking afterwards and then we'll have some fellowship together. It won't work. It just will not work. 
Fellowship is one of those things that helps us to conquer this. And we're going to go through 1 John together here fairly quickly, and we're going to see what we can do about this. Because there's some important lessons here. There's some things about you and me too that we understand that we have a potential to be addicted. We just need to be addicted to the right thing. We have to have a right perspective with this. And John's going to offer us a solution to sin. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's telling us, this is not a fable. This is not some story we all put together. This is reality. I was there. I touched him. You know, I tripped over his foot one day. I I sat with him. I knew what his accent was like. And the life was manifested, put together before us. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that, and this is the key, here's his purpose statement, so that you too may have fellowship with us. When you're in fellowship with somebody else, you agree with things. You can even disagree and still have fellowship. We talked about some of the issues in our seminary class of people that disagree with us, but with whom we have great fellowship. You know, when you're pursuing the Lord, when you're in fellowship with the Lord, You're in fellowship with everybody else that's pursuing the Lord. You cannot get a divorce and both of you be pursuing the Lord because he is all about unity, about staying together, and he hates divorce. If you're getting a divorce, one of you is out of fellowship, and maybe both of you are out of fellowship. You can't walk with God and not be unified. So that you two may have fellowship, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So John's writing, uh, the plural here is not entirely clear. Maybe he's just talking one of those majestic plurals the way doctors do. They say, we're going to take your gallbladder out. No, one guy's going to take your gallbladder out. It'd be one person. But we and the team and maybe those of us that care about you and your family and all that, it may be one of those plurals with this. He may be talking about Mary. He may have still been an ethicist when he wrote this, or other people that are concerned about those to whom he's writing. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And this is one of the best keys, one of the things that, that helps us with sin. You know, where God is, there's no sin. The personal presence of God, there's no sin. You want to get sin out of your life? Go to the presence of God. Now, there's some requirements to get there. You can't go in there and say, I was right all along. God, that wife you gave me, she really has made some bad choices. She's really not so good. The Lord's going to say, she is your provision for your life from me. She was my choice for you. We have to agree with him if we're going to enter his presence. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Not only with God the Father and the Son, but also with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Want to be cleansed from all sin? Here's the answer. The addict says, I just won't do that again. Well, maybe, maybe not today. Well, maybe, maybe not till later today. Well, maybe not. Well, maybe after this time I'll stop. We all know what this sounds like. We've all said those things to ourselves. Sin always takes us a little bit farther than we wanted to go. 
and causes us to stay a little bit longer than we wanted to stay. And it costs us a little bit more than we ever wanted to spend. It's just that way. That is its nature. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In contrast, if we confess our sins, and this is just a big theological word, all it really means is say the same thing. If God says, I hate divorce, we say, I hate divorce. If God says, accept the stranger and the foreigner, we say, we accept the stranger and the foreigner. If God says that stuff is bad, we say that stuff is bad. We simply take his viewpoint. I have a wife that has a tremendous capacity to do this. My Kathleen, she's adopted my family, and maybe you have one of these families too, where there's a few unusual people in there. She's got a few on her side too, so it's, it's an even playing field. But, you know, everybody get, has an old weird Uncle Harold or somebody in the family that when everyone gets together for Thanksgiving, we all have to just roll our eyes a little bit and smile and nod and hopefully try to get away and have some fun while it's going on there. She adopted my family. She completely accepted them as her own. But better than, than she had better relationships with some of them than I did. And they were my blood. To say the same thing is to simply take the same viewpoint. We accept them as family because of that. When we say what God says about sin, we're simply creating that fellowship. We're saying, you're right. You're right all along. We don't need to go to the presence of God and say, listen, God, that stuff about lying, you know, there's some good lies. You know, just look at the politicians. If we say that we have not sinned, and of course that's who we are, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what's sin doing in the world? You know, we say, I thought Jesus came to put an end to sin. Daniel 9 says that. Uh, that he would atone for sin and that we do not have to sin anymore. We're more than conquerors, Romans 8 says. We do not have to sin and yet we find ourselves sinning. You know, just from a practical standpoint, the goal is not to sin less. It's not that there's a mound of sin in heaven that God's shaking his head. Oh, I just hate all that sin. You know, He could eradicate the sin. God had every capacity in the Garden of Eden. He could have stepped in front of the tree and, and stood there with a, a wall of fire and said, Hey, I said don't. I have a granddaughter who is now a year and a half old. She has a sin nature. When she heads with her little finger towards the electric socket, she gets the dad voice. No. If she continues to it, she gets the raise the dead voice. That's the, the one that we use when our patients are not, not behaving. I had a situation. A young man with a heart attack was, was in, in the hospital on his back. We're working on him in, in the process of something we gave him or the heart attack made him nauseated. He was getting ready to, to throw up directly this way with, with his face up. And what happens is sometimes people will aspirate that. And so I told him, turn your head to the right. And he didn't hear me. My daughter was in the control room, not in the, the lab itself, but she's in the control room. So I said, turn your head to the right. And her stomach immediately cramped on her. He got the dad voice with all that. God could have done that same thing with Adam and Eve in the garden. He let them sin for a reason. We're not in plan B. We're in plan A. God uses sin, even your sin, for his purposes. If he was all about cutting down on sin, the answer would be suicide. Everyone who comes to Christ, say, all right, pick a day next week, end your life, and you won't sin anymore. No, that's not it. The answer, the key, the goal is to conquer sin. 
And we can't do it simply as an act of the will. Now, maybe sometimes. Maybe you did that. Maybe you said, this smoking is stupid, and put it out, and that was it. Good for you if you could. I know thousands of people that cannot. I knew one person was worried about getting cancer again, and she smoked cigarettes to calm her soul, creating for herself the greatest risk for getting more cancer. We, it didn't make any sense to her. It doesn't make any sense to us. That's who we are, and that's, that's one of the issues we have. Chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, this doesn't come through in the English the way it's supposed to. In the Greek, there's a, a tense called the subjunctive. It's not a concrete sin. It doesn't mean I'm writing this and you will therefore not sin. He's giving us the opportunity. The subjunctive means so that there might be some circumstance in which you might not sin. You might or you might not. But that doesn't mean that it's unattainable. Sinlessness can happen. Maybe not for life. Maybe not for an entire day. Maybe not for a complete hour with us. But there are options for you and me to conquer sin, to get sin out of our lives. And one of the ways is by having fellowship. We see it right here. And if anyone does sin, of course we do. He's just said, if we say we don't, we're lying. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Not just Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, another big theological word, the atoning, completely paying payment for our sins. The one that is going to help us to not sin is the same one that took our sins on himself. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5 says, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Where are we in the righteousness of God? In Christ. When we are in fellowship with Christ, if we are abiding in Christ, we are sinless. If you're abiding right now, if you're wholly given over to the Lord, if you are accepting his word, if you're yielding to it, if you look, look to the scriptures and say, man, I want to know all of them and I want to be able to, to obey all of them. That is not you talking in your native sense. That is your new nature, that which is born of God in you. And that's how this happens. Chapter 2, verse 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is one of the tests. One of the tests of a new believer for the New Testament time. People would say, well, there's sin in my life, so maybe I'm not a believer. There were people who, who just couldn't take it and, and were discouraged and despondent because they said, I, I believed, but I still had this sin in my life. That's you and me. We're still struggling with this. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So wait, is he saying that the believers are perfect? He just said in chapter 1 that believers can't say that they don't have sin. So how do we resolve this? What, in fact, is he saying? Verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. How did Jesus walk? When Jesus heard the Father speak, he obeyed completely. What he spoke came from the Father. Every action he did was in obedience to God. He was completely yielded to it. But that's not fair. You say, well, you know, that was Jesus. He didn't even have a sin nature. He had a choice. 
He looked at those choices with the mind of God, with the heart of God attached to the Father from before time even began, with the, the universe's greatest fellowship of all time. How could he break the Father's heart by knowing the Father so well? How could he, as an action of his will, choose that? You know, he was tempted by the chief of tempters, the devil himself, Matthew chapter 4. I love Mark's rendition where it says, after the temptation, that Jesus dismissed him. That's enough from you. I wish I'd seen the looks on, on their faces at that point. But Jesus was tempted. Now, and we look at that and we say, well, all right, so the devil offers him a planet since he made the entire universe. I think he looks at that and says, you know what? I think I'll keep the universe instead of just one planet and be beholding to you. He also looks at that as those things, and he says, everybody will worship you. And he's, of course, aware that at some point in the future, every knee will bow, and every creature in the universe will worship him. So he said, okay, so if I will bow down to you, I can get some worship? I don't think so. To break the heart of the Father is what it would have taken. He knew better. He loved the Father too much, and he had an iron will. So even though he had the capacity, he could have pressed the button that went there. Jesus was not going to succumb to that temptation. Why? Is it because he was smarter? No, he just knew the right thing. Is it because he loved the Father more than anyone else could? No, it's because he just did love the Father. It's because his will acted with that. It's exactly what we're saying here. That the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner. Why do you walk in the same manner? Why do you walk the way that you do? We made those decisions. Why do you choose not to take your pills? Why do you choose to drink alcohol? Why do you choose to stay up late at night? Why do you choose to exercise? We make a valuation statement with that in our choice. It's worth my life to do X, Y, Z. Is it worthwhile for me to exercise? A little. Is it worthwhile for me to exercise eight hours a day? No, so I'm not. Is it worthwhile for me to have a little chocolate? Well, that's my deal. You know, I, I think if I die a little bit earlier because of chocolate... I think that's a, that's a fair give and take. If I die 20 years earlier because of smoking, that's a stupid choice. Jesus was never tempted with something like that. We went over temptation the way he won over temptation. And we do it by fellowshipping with him. He says this about these commandments. And I want you to move forward to, to chapter 3 if you're following along in the scriptures here. These little children that he talks about, he's giving them these purpose statements. And he's explaining that the issues are strong, that many antichrists have gone out. The opposition is out there in the gospel. It's the Jews in the, the epistle. It's those who have left from us, the antichrist, the deceivers. And the deceivers are saying, if there's sin in your life, you're not really a Christian. You're not really going to go to heaven. And we doubt that. When we are following, when you're pursuing the Lord, when you're abiding, you don't have any problems with assurance. You don't wonder, well, what's God doing in my life when he's doing something in your life? Now, if you're thwarting him and you haven't done anything in a long time, maybe you gave a dollar in the offering plate last year and you're very proud of that. Gave God a very nice tip. Well, that probably is not going to last you for a while. You may begin to question yourself. If I've only put a dollar in the last two years, is my heart in the right place? Am I a believer? Am I really going to heaven? Am I keeping these commandments? And they're fair questions, very fair questions. Well, the answer comes up to this in, in chapter 3. He says here, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. Part of the reason why we don't respond is because we don't recognize 
who we are. If we could really see that we are children of the king of the universe, we'd act differently. If it really meant the pain to the Father for us to choose those things in which he is not involved at all, those things where sin is, if we understood his pain, if we were closer to him, if we were walking with him, we would be less tempted to do so. He says, we are these children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us. They don't have the receptors. They don't have the scopes to see this. They look at us and they say, a bunch of Christian wackos. You're just like every other religion, hoping to give yourself some reassurance about your, yourselves with all that. Wrong. My faith says, I am a stark, raving sinner. Incurable outside of Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ... I am a child of the creator of the universe. You know, there is not one single rogue atom in this universe. The only creatures who have chosen to disobey the creator are some of the angels, and their fate is sealed, and us. Now, the unbeliever, he doesn't have a choice. First Corinthians says, you know, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. We understand why he drinks and smokes and carouses and, and gives himself to those things. He's pitiful. He can't help it. He doesn't know any better. He doesn't have any allegiance for better. He might come control himself for a little while. He might stop because it's painful. He might quit drinking because he's got congestive heart failure. But overall, unbelievers have no hope to get past this sin nature. But we do. And it's right here. The world doesn't know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now... Are we the children of God? And here's our answer. Now are we the children of God. We have been born again, just like John 3, Nicodemus and Jesus. And that which is born in us is from above. It has of its nature the new nature of God. By nature, your new nature as a believer cannot sin. Now the trouble is, we still have an old nature. And sometimes our old nature is a professional uh, deceiving, wonderful, practiced, extremely capable practitioner of sin in the same body as the new nature. And how do we go from one to the other? We take our new nature to the presence of God. We confess and say exactly what God says about our sin. And as we walk with him, our sin nature has no voice, no power, no will, no options. As we let one get stronger, imagine if you could do that every minute of every day. So if you can't do that every minute of every day, start out. Do a few minutes. Say, listen, I don't, I don't want the world in me. I don't want the, the world, the flesh, and the devil to drive me today. So I'm going to spend my first five minutes in the scriptures agreeing with what God says. Praying for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Praying for the heart of God, for the will of God to be expressed with them. You come out from that, you're never going to say this. Oh, I wish I'd, I'd watch some Oprah reruns instead of doing that. The time I've spent in the scriptures... Been fantastic time. I wish I'd spent more. We just had a wonderful semester at, at uh, Telios, uh, going through the Old Testament. I'm ready to go back through it again. What a fantastic time. I wish we had double the time with all that. We look back at that the way those who walked on the road to Emmaus when Jesus was explaining the scriptures at Emmaus Theological Seminary on the road that day. They said, did not our hearts burn within us when he was breaking open the word? <sighs> what could be better with that? So if you're struggling, you can't sit and pray, honor God, worship God, read the scriptures, 
and attend to your addiction. It just won't go there. You can't do it. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. There's a future to this. We're heading there. We know that when he appears, this is the second coming. He's going to come for us. Corinthians and Thessalonians talk about this. We will be like him. We will be like him. Sandy Patty was transformed by the the song, We Shall Behold Him. Imagine if Jesus strode into your office and said, "I'm, I'm here. This is me. Do you know me? Imagine if he said to you as he did to Thomas, uh, do you really want to stick your fingers in here? You want to put your hand into my chest? Is that what you'd like to do? We have no record that Thomas said, yeah, let me put my finger there. Uh, Thomas, like Job, when the Lord appears, has no case left. You can take me off the stand now. I'm no longer a credible witness. You're the only one that should speak in this room. Judge, jury, and the source of life. But it goes on and gets better. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Our new nature will reflect his nature, a sinless nature, a nature that by its very existence honors God, loves God, and obeys God. The reason is this, the second part of the verse, because we will see him just as he is. What transforms us? His presence. His presence transforms us. When you're in the presence of God, in worship, in study, in service, you are being transformed. Your old nature is losing its power. It's saying, stop doing this, let's go get drunk. Stop doing this, let's go carouse. And your new nature is saying, are you kidding? I'm being used of God. I'm being blessed of God. I'm learning about his scriptures. This is giving me that suffusion of blessing in my heart. And you want me to go be like the world? I get what the world gets. And I'm not really interested. Verse 4, in contrast, everyone who practices sin. And let me take you just through a little bit of Greek here. This is something to, this is a a gristle for us to solve in here. There are people that solve it one way and people that solve it another way. It says here, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And yet we still have these sins. That's our problem. And in him, there is no sin. So we go get in him. No one who abides in him sins. So we're thinking now, how does this happen? Who is that? That's the me, that's the new nature of me that is honoring him, abiding him, fellowshipping with him, and it cannot sin. It can't even sin a little bit, not even a tad, not even a a hairbreadth. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, the new nature. Just as he is righteous, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil, sin. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin. Now, am I saying to you today in great pride, oh, would I be proud if if I could? I, I talked to a preacher one time who doesn't believe that believers still sin. doesn't believe you can be a carnal Christian. In fact, he believes that if you sin once after coming to faith, you're going to hell forever. There's, there's no hope for you. So I said, so you mean you, since you're a young man, have essentially not sinned? And he said, well, yes, that, that's correct. I said, you must be so proud. 
You understood what I was saying. If I could not sin, I would be so proud. But if I could not sin only because I was in fellowship with the Lord Jesus, I have no reason to boast. You know, salvation was made to be of faith alone, independent of works, so that no one could boast. Colossians 2.6 2, says, In the same way you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. We received Him by faith, not of works. How do we walk in Him? By faith, not by works. This says that you are sinless in your new nature when you're communing and abiding and fellowshipping with God. It also says that in your old nature, there's nothing good. It does nothing but sin. And that's who we are together, is those two. Some people take this and they say, well, it means practicing sin like on a routine basis or as a characteristic of life. That's not there in the Greek. That's an interpretation that's been inserted in there. And I understand that. Wonderful, godly people that have blessed my life and have taught me much take that viewpoint. I think they're dead wrong, but, but they're wonderful people nonetheless. I'm sure I don't have it all right. I hope I do, but uh, I'm sure I don't have it all right. But in this, I think this is very straightforward. My new nature, your new nature, has no capacity to sin. Want to get rid of your sin? Get to your new nature. How do you get there? You go to the presence of God. Look forward, if you would, to chapter 4. We're going to see some of the great things in here, the, the encouragements, the exhortations that we see from John as a result with this. One of the reasons why we can conquer sin is we understand our natures. We understand we are the children of God, and it's not then, it's now. And that transforms us. It takes our new nature in its complete capacity to be completely sinless. And we simply strengthen it, and we remain in it, and we abide in it. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not know love does not know God, for God is love. Need a little love in your life? There's one source. Outside of God, no love. Now, maybe a little warm feeling, maybe a little give and take. Maybe, you know, she'll understand, he'll understand. Maybe we can put together some kind of negotiation, a contract, be happy, say something in front of the preacher, get that certificate, and we'll be happy. Don't count on it. United States, domestic violence is the number one killer of people. Number one killer of policemen is people who have betrothed themselves one to the other and swore till death do us part. The problem is they just try to hasten that death part to get out of the contract because they don't love each other anymore. Want to love somebody? Want to be loved? There's only one source. Outside of God, no love. Forget about it. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, verse 9... The love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. It's all in Christ. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the covering payment for our sins. So sinning and loving are wrapped up with this. If you're abiding with with God, you are not only sin free, but you are loving with the love of God. The final thing that I want to go through with, with this is that many times we allow this to erode our assurance. When you're in the midst of sin, you're doing that thing that you don't want to be doing, that you've kind of developed a pattern with and you're not very proud about. When the Spirit of God prompts your heart, it's the thing that rises to the top first. It may even have a name. There may be a person associated with it. There may be some feeling with it. And when you're in it, you sense something of what the addict feels, that 
here we go. This is it. This is my thing. I'm tasting it. I'm feeling it. I'm smelling it. I've got that heightened sense in my receptors, my blood vessels, my heart. Those things are happening to me, and I like those feelings. I know this is not the best, and I wouldn't do this with my mom present, and I wouldn't do this in front of the church, and I don't want to write a book on how to do this and encourage others to. In fact, I would encourage everybody else never to do this, but for right now, I'm doing this. That's who we are. When we're there, we wonder, do I really have this faith? Do I have a new nature? Am I getting to where I'm supposed to be with God? Could, does God just not love me enough to conquer this? The prayers of addicts are pitiful. Oh God, keep me from doing this. Oh God, empower me from doing this. He has done so. And the way that he empowers us is not to wipe out the sin. He doesn't burn down the tree in the middle of the garden. He doesn't destroy every pretty woman on earth. That wouldn't solve it. We'd go to the not-so-pretty women on earth if we were really an addict. That's who we are. It's not the good booze. We'd go to the bad booze. People will go to radiator fluid to drink if they can't get their alcohol. That's what a false god will do to you and to me. So he tells us this the end of his book here, chapter 5, verse 13. And you know this verse. You ought to know this verse. If you've not memorized it, you should memorize it. He says here, five thirteen. these things I have written to you who believe, it's the only criteria, in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Why is he writing this? Because they had doubts. Why did they have doubts? Because there was sin in their lives, like there's sin in our lives. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything According to his will. Jesus said the same thing in the gospel. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request. Not will have, but have now the requests which we've asked from him. That's a great book. I'd encourage you to read the rest of 1 John. The story there is very straightforward. How to conquer sin. We don't do it on ourselves. We don't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. It's, it's not a matter of, you know, go become a Navy SEAL. And when you can really, you know, discipline yourself to do anything, then stop sinning. Navy SEALs sin too, maybe more than other people because of who they are. Maybe they can get away with it. Who's going to stop one of those guys? What's going to stop us? One thing. One thing, and it is fellowship with God. If you're struggling with something, carve it out. John Owen was a great theologian in the, the 17th century in England, they, they put him out of business. They were conformists and nonconformists in those days, based upon how much they would let the Church of England tell them what to do. And he was a nonconformist because he was a biblicist. So they put him out of work, and he sat home, and he wrote volume after volume of theology. And in it, one of his volumes is called On the Mortification of Sin. Mortification simply means putting to death. This is from uh, Romans chapter 8. How do we put sin to death? We crucify it. We get in our new nature. We spend time in our new nature. And then we carve out. We make it impossible for the old nature to function. If your problem is your computer, throw your computer in the ocean. If your problem is the TV, take a hammer to it. If your problem is a certain person, move away. You have options. If you don't want this in your life, you have the power through the new nature to make them all happen. It will happen. When my granddaughter goes for that, that light switch, if the voice doesn't get her, I'll throw my body in front of her. She will not get there. It will not happen. That's what John's telling us. That's what he wants us to do is to realize what we have. And what we have is the capacity to conquer sin. Maybe not all of it, 
It won't be all of it. We shouldn't expect when we find ourselves in sin, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a loser. I, I'm never going to make it. But you have the capacity. And in it, you can not only conquer sin for your sake, but for the Lord's sake. What would glorify him more than for you to win over, for you to be the uber conqueror over that sin that's besetting you, that you don't want in your life, that you just as soon get removed like a, a gangrenous limb. If you could get it gone, you'd submit to it. Let's pray together. Oh God, we recognize that you made us this way. We recognize that this was the plan, that you wanted us to be this way, that you intended for there to be this struggle. And Lord, we're struggling. We struggle every day with this. And we wish we could just plain eradicate it, but that is not what you put on the menu for us. So Lord, we're grateful to you that you've made us this bipartite being with a new nature that can love you and honor you and serve you. And yet the irony is that just like a fountain that spews forth bitter water and sweet, that we have an old nature that can serve the flesh so capably. Lord, this struggle honors you. And we learn not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in what you have said. Faith comes by hearing, and you've told us that we are now the children of God. That we have a new nature that can keep these commandments, can love the brethren, and can know for sure that we have this eternal life within us. Not something that's going to happen in the future, but something that's here now. Lord, I pray that there might be one soul here who perhaps doesn't know you as Savior, that would trust you as the one who can conquer sin. And for the people of God who struggle with this and sometimes take themselves out of ministry, out of service, out of blessing, out of fellowship because of our failures, that, Lord, your word might encourage them to re-engage and despite their sins, to speak the truth, to confront, to exhort, to obey, to love, and to be assured of eternal life. Thank you for the ministry of your word in our hearts. May the name of Jesus be glorified and elevated by its work in us. In his name we pray. Amen.